where we're going to be looking at why a life with God is greater than a life without God. A life of faith is greater than a life without faith. Uh, and many times when we talk about this subject, the subject of discipleship, of following closer in the footsteps of Jesus, we can talk about the cost that is associated with discipleship, the cost of discipleship, and those things that we have to give up. But we wanted to also be able to talk about those things that we stand to gain. What is the greater, more abundant life that God is calling us into? Um, because yes, it comes with sacrifices, but it also is a life that is more abundant and better and healthier and holier for us that God has prepared for us. And so that's the subject of, of these messages these, these six weeks. Today we're going to talk about why community is greater than self. Why community is an essential part of the Christian faith. And why if we want to follow closer in the footsteps of Jesus, we're going to have to be in relationship and invest in relationships with one another. Um, the scripture we're going to read today is one that you have likely heard before, I'm going to guess, but maybe not in, in a Sunday morning church service setting. I'm going to guess that most of us are familiar with this scripture because we have been to a Christian wedding at some point, and we have heard these words from the book of Ecclesiastes that talk about a two-strand cord and a three-strand cord and how two are better than one. These will be familiar words, and we normally hear them in the context of weddings. Yesterday, I got to officially a wedding. I'll say more about that a little bit later. Um, and so in preparation for this week, we thought it'd be interesting to take this scripture that is normally a wedding scripture and to have it uh, reveal truth to us on a Sunday morning because it really is broader than just weddings. The scripture was not written because some old Jewish theologian uh, thousands of years ago thought, man, this will be great for weddings in America someday. You know, that's what I'm going to write this about. It's a much broader text. It has to do with relationships and community in general because community Community was a very important uh, concept uh, to the Judeo belief system uh, back in those days as well. If you don't know anything about Ecclesiastes, what you need to know is that it's a book, uh, it's a wisdom literature text. So it's part of the Old Testament where it, it's simply trying to reveal basic real life truth. And, and Ecclesiastes is kind of a little bit different than other books uh, that are wisdom literature texts because it, it has this kind of critical, uh, realistic, even pessimistic kind of tone to it. And maybe that's why I love it so much. Uh, it is a book for cynics, but it's a redemptive book for cynics. And what's fascinating is that Ecclesiastes, it, it, it talks about the meaninglessness of so many of the things that we do in life, the meaninglessness of all this work, this toil. It talks about all these things we do that ultimately, if we don't keep certain things in mind, will we'll be meaningless and pointless and will leave us feeling empty. And that's what the author is going to be addressing here how being in community is something that gives meaning to life, and without it, we could feel rather meaningless. And so, with all of that in mind, we're going to go to God in prayer and ask that God be a part of this moment, because we believe that Scripture is a living text, and that when we invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of this, it becomes something more than a book report, right? So, let's go to God in prayer, and then we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 in the Common English Bible Translation. Let's pray. Gracious God, we gather this morning as a community of faith. We've, always, we've already witnessed that community before us as we've seen another family join this church and make a commitment to this church. And we, in turn, recommit ourselves 
to this church, not simply an institution, but a community, a body of believers, a body of people who struggle together and love together and live together, not for our own sake, but for your sake. God, we ask that you would be a part of this moment, that you would remind us of your presence as we read your scripture. You'd make it come alive for us. Help it to leap off of the pages of our Bibles and off of the screens and into our hearts that it might change the way that we live our lives. All this we pray in the name of your holy and precious son, Jesus. Amen. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 7, the author says this, Next I saw under the sun something else that was pointless. So it's a real pick-me-up book, right? There are people who are utterly alone, with no companions, not even a child or a sibling. Yet they work hard without end, never satisfied with their wealth. So for whom am I working so hard and depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is pointless and a terrible obsession. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their hard work. If either should fall, one can pick up the other, but how miserable are those who fall and don't have a companion to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they can stay warm, but how can anyone stay warm alone? Also, one can be overpowered, but two together can put up resistance. A three-ply cord doesn't easily snap. A three-ply cord. So I'm going to be a really bad Old Testament scholar right now, and I'm going to read something into this text that isn't really there. You know, the three-ply cord, the, 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 the Jewish author who wrote Ecclesiastes clearly was not making a reference to the Trinitarian nature of God. That would not have been on their mind, and yet that is where my mind went when I read this scripture this week. I immediately, I got to that three-ply cord, and my mind went, as a, as a Christian pastor today, it went to this idea of Trinity, this, this sense of threeness, this sense of togetherness. And, and the first thing I want to talk about today is this. If we want to know a relational God, we have to invest in relationships. The reason my brain went there is I started thinking about this three-ply cord, and I started thinking about the three-ply nature of God. And my brain actually went all the way over to the other end of the Bible to the cross. And one of, the, one of my favorite parts when I went to seminary was learning about heresies. Heresies are fun. Heresies are super fun. Um, those, are the thing, those are the ditches that theologians fall into throughout the history of the Christian church. And, and you know, really it's, the, it's the, you know, sort of the winner gets to write the story. Well, if you're the loser, you get branded a heretic. And, and there was a, a theologian who believed fervently, his name was Arius, and he believed fervently that um, Jesus on the cross was not really God. Because he was concerned that if God was actually a part of Jesus on the cross, if Jesus was more than just a man, then that meant that God died, and God can't die. God's too good. God's too perfect. God's too holy. God's too mighty. If God dies, that's a problem. And so Arius, back in like the year 300, he, he starts writing and preaching about how, no, 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 I think Jesus was really just a man. I had a, a professor in, in, in Perkins who described it this way. It was like he was saying Jesus was kind of Paris figure skating, right? And there's Jesus and God. And then right at the moment of the cross, the, the one pair throws the other one, right? And Jesus ends up on the cross all alone. And God's down there protected, you know. And, and, and the problem with that 
And the reason why we don't profess this as a doctrine of the Christian church today, the reason why Arius was labeled a heretic, is because the church, through much debate and through much guidance and through much prayer and seeking, came down on the decision that God doesn't need protecting. And in fact, that God was so committed to that relationship of God's self and Jesus, that that divine human connection so intertwined you can't distinguish between them, that God was so committed to that relationship that God could not have possibly removed God's self at the moment of the cross, that God would have willingly died on the cross for the sake of that relationship. If we believe that God is Trinity, if we believe that God is three in one, so intertwined that we cannot distinguish, that we can't pull them apart, we don't worship three different gods, we worship one God, they are so closely connected, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we really believe that, that God is that committed to relationship that God would even die on a cross, then wouldn't it stand to reason that we would find that God, that we would discover that God most clearly through relationships ourselves? Wouldn't it stand to reason that if God is that committed to relationships, that maybe we, as those seeking after God, we should be seeking out relationships just as passionately as God does, willing to commit ourselves just as really, as, rea- as realistically as God does? That's the first place my mind goes when I read this scripture. The second place my mind went is I'm reading this first part, the, the pointlessness The author says, next I saw under the sun something else that was pointless. There are people who are utterly alone with no companions, not even a child or a sibling. Now, the author is using family relations because that made the most sense in their day. I would expand this today to be they had no friends, they had no sense of community, yet they work hard without ends, never satisfied with their wealth. Do you know someone like this? Have you been someone like this? So for whom am I working so hard and depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is pointless and a terrible obsession." The second thing that, that hit me like a ton of bricks this past week as I was reading the scripture is this. We can find happiness alone, but we will find purpose in community. Now, when I was growing up, I remember people saying, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. And I'd be like, you've never been poor, right? Um, absolutely money can buy happiness. Absolutely individual pursuits can buy happiness. There's a lot of things that cost money that make me really happy. How about you? Now, when I say happy, I mean like a really thin surface level. I'm not talking about like deep spiritual joy. I'm talking about happiness, right? Like UNT beating the tar out of Arkansas yesterday made me very happy, right? Now, I don't know if that's a spiritual joy that will sustain me the rest of my life, but that made me happy, right? And they paid UNT a million dollars to get beat. So, you know, money can buy happiness, right? We can find happiness alone. I, I love alone time. I love solitary endeavors. I, I love hobbies that I do by myself. I love having time to myself to think, to process, to watch a TV show, to, to, to do whatever I want to do because there's a lot of happiness that I can find on my own. I don't think that solitary pursuits are inherently bad, but I'm also a Methodist. I'm a, I'm a Wesleyan, which means that I follow and close pay close attention to the teachings of a man named John Wesley who lived a few hundred years ago and who was an Anglican priest that started this movement in the Anglican church that became Methodism. 
And John Wesley was all about solitary pursuits. I mean, he was very committed to that. And obviously, he believed that you could find happiness and even joy in solitary pursuits. That's why we're called Methodists, because he would wake up crazy early and live this very methodical life where you'd wake up at like 4 a.m. and do an hour of Bible study and then do an hour of prayer. And it was very this organized, individual, solitary pursuits. We'd call that personal holiness that he was, that he was seeking. And that's why he was called a Methodist. It was kind of an insult at first in, at college for him. But, but then he adopted it and became our name. So there you go. Um, show the haters, right? And um, Wesley also, though, believed very passionately. He had this saying that was very pithy, and it's, it's stood the test of time. That there is, no, there is no holiness, Wesley believed, but social holiness. Now, what he means by that, there's no holiness but social holiness. What he means by that is that personal pursuits, personal spiritual pursuits are good and they're worthy and they're holy and they're great. You should absolutely read scripture. You should absolutely spend your time in devotion. You should absolutely spend time in personal prayer. But if those things don't propel you or even compel you, out into the world around you, into the lives around you, into the people around you, if that doesn't propel you into acts of service and love, real, tangible acts of love in the world around you, then is that really holy? Is it a life worth living if you spend all your days stuck in a dark closet reading Scripture and praying to God? Wesley would say no. There is no holiness but social holiness. It doesn't mean that we don't value those personal things. It doesn't mean that we don't commit ourselves to acts of solitude and acts of, of personal holiness, but it means that those things have to turn into something real and outside of ourselves, that they have to turn into acts of service and acts of love and acts of kindness and acts of justice in the world around us, or we may not have the holiness that we think that we do. And our purpose that we find in life I think is inherently tied to the people in the world around us. Think about the solitary pursuits that you enjoy. If they're your life's purpose, then they're meant to be shared, right? If you're an artist, that's a very solitary pursuit. You sit and you paint. But if it's your life's purpose, you want people to enjoy it. You want it to hang in galleries. You want people to hang your pieces in their homes. You, you want people to enjoy it. If, if you're a musician, you can sit in your room and you can play music by yourself. I mean, you pick a hobby. I don't care what it is. But if it's your life's purpose, if it's the purpose that you want your life to be about, then it, it ought to compel you and propel you out into the world. It, it ought to be connected somehow to the lives and the world around you. Our scripture says that when we live a life devoid of community, when we live a life devoid of connection, when we live a life that doesn't extend beyond ourselves, when all it's about is us, when all it's about is ourselves, ultimately it's meaningless. I mean, who cares if you have the biggest farm? He's talking about this hard work. He talks other words. Ecclesiastes talks about the agrarian life a lot. Who cares if you've got the biggest farm with the most cattle and the fattest goats? If you don't have any friends or you don't have any family, you don't have anything outside of you, you don't have any sense of community, you don't have anything beyond you, what are the ripple effects of your life? That's where we find our life's meaning. Then I keep reading. I get to this second half of this scripture where it says two are better than one because they have a good return for their hard work. If either should fall, one can pick up the other, but how miserable are those who fall and don't have a companion to help them up? 
Also, if two lie down together, they can stay warm. But how can anyone stay warm alone? Also, one can be overpowered, but two together can put up resistance. This week, this, that, that, those scriptures, those words just kept circulating in me. Um, and maybe because for once I wasn't reading them and trying to think of how to write a wedding sermon. They kept, they kept circulating me because, quite honestly, this was a difficult week in the midst of many difficult weeks. But this was an especially difficult week for us as a nation and even locally as a community. And, and what I heard the Scripture saying to me this week was we find out who our community is when times get tough. Two are better than one. When one falls down, the other one's there to pick them up. Two can stay warm. How can one stay warm together? One can be defeated, but two can put up a resistance. When, when times get tough, we find out who our community is. And community, we need to acknowledge that this was a difficult week. This is a heavy week emotionally. In one week, we remembered and honored the anniversary of 9-11. We have wrestled with and continue to wrestle with the murder of Botham Jean. We learned that an officer in the Fort Worth Police Department was shot in the line of duty and killed. And Hurricane Florence is making a wreck out of North and South Carolina and will continue to do so for days, and then the recovery will last for years. This has been an emotionally heavy week. This is a week that has tested us in more ways than one. And when you find yourself tested, when you find your community tested, you find out who your community really is. So I always find this time of year poignant when, when 9-11 rolls around and we, we see people remembering. I actually really appreciate seeing people's personal stories of where they were, how they processed. I think this is an important part of our nation, sort of processing this event together, even 17 years later, still processing these wounds and continuing this grieving process. You know, grief never really ends. And, and I find the, the personal stories powerful, and, and I really love hearing stories of how communities came together in the days and weeks and months that followed. I think it displayed in many ways our country at our absolute best. Do you believe that? Now, my, my personal story from that day is a little bit different, and, and it goes to this point about being tested. So, not to age myself, and you know, it is what it is. I was in the eighth grade on September 11th, 2001. Um, and so I was in homeroom, and I, like many of my classmates, watched the second plane hit the second tower. And um, that was traumatic, and a lot of us grew up very quickly in that moment. Um, and then, um, but that's not what, what I remember most about that day. What I remember most happened in the third period in algebra class. And I have no idea what the teacher was teaching that day. To be honest, I have no idea what she was teaching most days. Um, and because uh, the, the junior high I went to was in close proximity to DFW Airport, there was a lot of concern, if you remember on that day, there was a lot of anxiety about, is there going to be another attack? And DFW Airport was actually very high on the list of potential targets, the authorities thought. And so um, our junior high, I mean, the, the, the rules did not apply that day. Teachers let kids have cell phones if they had cell phones. I didn't, but a lot of my friends did. And, you know, kids were getting calls because we had family and friends who lived and worked in New York, maybe lived or maybe worked in the Twin Towers, lived or worked in D.C. I had a friend whose uncle worked in the Pentagon. And so, they, you know, 
Kids were getting calls from their families, either wanting to take them out of school or keeping them updated on how their family was doing, if everyone was safe and okay. And so every time someone got a call, they'd take it out in the hallway, and we'd all kind of hold our breath. In, in third period algebra, one of my friends, she got a call, and she went out in the hallway, and, you know, we're all holding our breath. She's out there for like a minute and a half, which feels like an eternity on a day like that. And she comes back in, and, and her eyes are red and puffy, and there are just tears coming down her face. And, it, I mean, you could have just heard all of our hearts just sink. And we're all assuming the worst, that someone she knows was, was killed in the attack. We said, is everything okay? Is your family okay? And she said, yeah, no, it's not that. She said, I just got off the phone with my dad. And what she needed to know is that her dad is Palestinian. He's a Muslim American. And her mom is a Caucasian American. And she said, I just got off the phone with my dad. And he said that the terrorists were Muslim. And that means that everybody's going to hate us now. I grew up in a pretty diverse part of DFW, even for the time. And I had grown up, you know, in the land of the 90s, where like every children's program had to have every single diversity checked off the list, right? You had to have the redhead with glasses. There was always a redhead with glasses in every 90s show. So, I mean, I grew up in this era of seeing everybody as equals, and not once in my life do I remember having to confront the fact that people were seen differently than one another until that moment. Because I looked in the eyes of my friend, whose name was different than mine, whose hair was curlier than mine, whose skin was darker than mine, and I saw in her eyes something that I've come to see many, 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 many more times, and I've come to hear many, many, many more times now that I'm an adult, and I've got friends of color who I've heard their experiences, but I I saw in that moment someone who knew they were going to be treated differently simply because of who they were. We were tested as a country Not only on that day, but in the years to follow. We remember we didn't get that right all of the time, yeah? We still don't. It continues to test us. But I love this country because I think that ultimately we are moving in the direction of of equity and equality. I think we're moving in a direction where less kids have to have phone calls like that, where less kids have to have that experience. But we have to acknowledge that it continues to be a test. We continue to be tested on how we're going to treat other people in our community, how we're going to hear other people in our community, how we're going to see other people in our community and understand that their experiences are radically, in many, many cases, radically different than our own, simply because of who they are. This past week, we continue to wrestle with the death of Botham Jean. And I, I want to say this about this. I, there's a lot that could be said, but I want to say this. Every time issues around law enforcement and race come up, I, I get so frustrated. And so allow me to be frustrated for one second. I get so frustrated of the false dichotomy that says you either have to acknowledge that a person's race still is a factor in the way they are treated by our law enforcement systems, acknowledging that that, that is true, not just experientially but statistically. You have to pick either between believing that or loving and supporting police. That is a false choice. That is a false dichotomy. And I get so frustrated that it seems like these conversations just sort of fall apart and become either you recognize what is true, that race is still a factor in our country, or 
you ha- or you love and support police. You can't do both at the same time. And, and I just want to say from a pulpit, that's baloney. This past week, Officer Hull of the Fort Worth Police Department gave his life in service for his city. I love and support police. And I also believe that our law enforcement systems ought to be held to high standards and that we can always be better. That unfortunately, it appears as though race is still a factor in the way that people are treated by our law enforcement systems. You can disagree with that. You can, you can believe that that's not true. But, it's, but what's certainly not true is that if you believe that, you can't love and support cops. Or if, that you, if you love and support cops, it means that you, you can't have a heart and compassion for racial inequity. I think that we as the church have to lead the way in saying we can hold both these things in tension. We have to be willing to talk about this stuff. We have to be willing to wrestle with this stuff. We have to be willing to unite around these common issues because this is not an either-or proposition. We have to come together as a community and figure this stuff out. Because talking past each other and yelling at each other is not working. And it's going to take time to build bridges and to repair. Hurricane Florence is currently, right now, unloading inches and feet of water upon the coastal Carolinas. And if you've ever been affected by a hurricane to that magnitude, if you've ever known somebody affected by a hurricane to that magnitude, it will be decades until everywhere is restored back to what it once was. My family was affected by Hurricane Katrina. I know the kind of long-term attention and care it's going to require. These things are connected. Why? Because when we confront acts of evil, when we confront evil in our lives, whether they be terrorist attacks, a tragic murder, or a hurricane, we have one of two choices as a community. We can either move in the direction of self-preservation or we can move in the direction of community unity. We have two choices there. That's the real dichotomy. We can move in a direction of self-preservation or we can move in the direction of community unity. When we move in a direction of self-preservation, what are we trying to preserve? We're trying to preserve our safety. We're trying to preserve maybe our status. We're trying to preserve our beliefs because we hate having to rethink what we believe. I do, I know, because I'm a know-it-all. And maybe most of all, we want to preserve our apathy Church, can we be real for a second? Isn't it sometimes easier just not to care? Really? There are some things that I wish I didn't care about, if I'm being honest, because it keeps me up at night. Sometimes I think we just want to preserve our apathy. We want to be able to shut our brains off and not have to worry about something else. But I don't think that's what brings communities together, and I don't think that's what brings healing. I don't think that's what brings the kingdom of God to this earth. I don't think that's what brings restoration and redemption in the name of Jesus Christ. I think God is asking us to place our safety and our status and our beliefs and especially our apathy on the altar. The cost of discipleship is those things. When we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, We acknowledge that safety is not the most important thing, that status is not the most important thing, that belief, our personal preconceived beliefs are not the most important thing, and that certainly our apathy is not the most important thing. We lay all of them in the altar and ask God to do with them whatever God chooses. And instead, we work to bring unity in the community that God has brought us to. 
And what can we unite around? Because here's the good news, folks, is that hope is not lost. Whether terrorists are attacking Twin Towers, whether members of our community are being unjustly murdered, whether uh, hurricanes are attacking um, broad swaths of our nation, hope is not lost because I believe in the power of a God-breathed community. I believe in what the Holy Spirit can do when we ask ourselves, how do we unite? What can we unite around? Can we unite around shared values? I mean, that was America at its best following 9-11 as we all realized that these divisions that we experienced, ultimately we're Americans and we love freedom and we love each other and it was a big old kumbaya love fest for a while there. There's something about tragedies that bring people together and make you realize that maybe we really do have more in common than we have apart. Can we unite around a shared desire to listen? That's a harder one. I think that when tragedies strike, a lot of us are quick to want to say something, myself included. This is where, this is where Pastor Scott gets really guilty because my job is to talk. But do we have a shared desire to listen, to understand that some of our experiences, even in the midst of great tragedy, might be different? Maybe we grieve tragedies differently because of our experience, because of who we are. Just like my friend in junior high grieved differently on that day than I did. And can we unite, this is the biggest one, can we unite in a spirit of love that we believe originates in God? Can we unite in a spirit of love that we believe originates in God? If you believe that God is love, and you believe that that love compels you out into the world, then you have to believe that God's love is spurring you to develop a, a community built on the spirit of God and the spirit of God's love, not just in church, but out in our world as well. And we talk about this originating of God's love at weddings. I want to I close talking about this wedding. This wedding I did yesterday, I, don't, I wouldn't normally say, let me tell you about my wedding. This was a big wedding. It was my first bilingual wedding. If you know me, you know that I'm not bilingual. That's what made it interesting, right? Um, I had a couple who came to me, and his family is, you know, from America, and her family's from Peru. And we were planning the wedding, and they were wanting it to be a little bit longer. And if you know United Methodist weddings, you know, we're, we're quick to get out. You know, we are, we are not Catholic, right? We were like, uh, 15 minutes, and we're off to the reception. You know, this is really about the party, you know. And, um, and so I said, well, if we just do like a buy-the-book, because they're like, we're very traditional, just want a simple, classic wedding. I said, well, a simple, classic wedding is going to be like 15 minutes, guys. And they're like, oh, we were wanting it like 30. And so I said, well, um, I said to the bride, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but you said your family's from Peru, do they all speak English and understand English? And she said, no, actually, most of them just speak and understand Spanish. I said, well, that would really stink. If I flew halfway around the world to go see a wedding and didn't know a lick of what was being said, I'd be a little bit bored and maybe a little bit ticked, too. Like, this is all great for y'all. That half the room's crying. I have no idea what's happening right now. And so I said, well, tell you what, I've got a, a colleague of mine, Amy Spar at La Fundación de Cristo. I said, let me see if she's got a Spanish script for the wedding, the same, you know, the same order of worship that we use. And they said, really, we could do that? I was like, yeah. And that's why I know the Holy Spirit is real, because that was a really silly thing for me to agree to do. Um, I think God was just like, go and do this. You know, no, no holiness, but social holiness. Okay, great. And, um, and so I get the script from Amy. Thank you, Amy Spar at La Fundación de Cristo. Uh, thank you so, so much. And I type it all up. And yesterday we had a bilingual wedding. And it went okay. Um, 
I pronounced most of the words really, really well. I did say instead of, you know, in one of the prayers, we refer to God as the way, the truth, and the life, and the word for way is uh, uh, camino, right, like like a street, and I said comino, which if you know Spanish means cumin, so God is the cumin, uh, the truth, and the life. That was cool. But here's, here's the crazy thing. So, the father of the groom, he told me he was Ukrainian, and he was telling me about his wedding and how, you know, when he was getting married, they had these golden crowns that they had to wear. It was this very high church, Eastern Orthodox Ukrainian ceremony, and gold was everywhere, and robes were everywhere, and here we are in this stripped-down, simple Methodist wedding, and the bride's family is all very Catholic, and so they're probably wondering, what is this goofy little Texan boy doing marrying our daughter off? And... Um, at the end of the wedding, uh, this young boy comes up, couldn't have been older than eight or nine, and he said, hi, I'm Lucas. I said, hi, Lucas. He said, I, I want to say thank you for doing that wedding in Spanish. I like that you did that. I said, oh, I'm feeling like so good. I'm like, oh, you're so welcome, Lucas. I'm like, I'm the best pastor. He goes, you need to work on your Spanish. <laughs> But then he said something that, like, there are times as a pastor when you're like, oh, man, God, thank you for reminding me how real you are. What comes out of his mouth next, he goes, but it was a beautiful symbol of love. Like eight or nine, I'm like, Lucas, you're so sweet. Um, and then a bunch of her family came up and started speaking Spanish to me because I thought I knew Spanish. And so then I just said, ah, gracias, gracias, for like the next, like, 15 minutes. I am now Father Scott, by the way. Um, You need to work on your Spanish, but it was a beautiful symbol of love. And I just wanted to say, Lucas, you, you have no idea how right you are. You know, here's a family who, the groom's dad got married with a gold crown on his head, and the bride's family came in from Peru, and here they are being led in bad Spanish by a Tejano. And it was messy, and it was clunky, and we mixed up our words, and, 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 and it wasn't perfect, and I said that God is cumin, <laughs> but it was beautiful, and it built community, and, and we walked out of those doors, and everyone's hugging each other, and everyone's loving each other, and, and, and I couldn't get over how much fun we had because we were willing to speak in a way that others could hear us, and we were willing to listen to something that we weren't used to hearing. I think those are really two important, those are two really important ingredients if we're going to build Christian, holy, God-spirit-driven community. And so this week, I want you to go into your homes, into your streets, into your places of work, into the, wherever your lives take you, and to know that your purpose in life will be found in relationship, and that it can get messy, especially when we try to speak to people who have radically different experiences than us, especially when our Spanish needs some work. And it can be hard to listen to others, especially when we don't really understand what's being said, but if we try, if we try, it could be a beautiful symbol of love. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for a place where we can come and offer up whoever we are today to you. 
Maybe we've had the best week of our lives, or maybe this has been one of the worst. Maybe we feel so loved and supported right now, or maybe we feel absolutely alone. And God, if there is anyone here in this room that feels so absolutely alone, and the words of Ecclesiastes, that word of meaningless rings true for them, God, I ask that you would remind them of your presence first, and then, God, I'd ask that you would allow them to be loved and supported by this community. Have them say something. Have them reach out. Help us to see those we know are walking alone. Help us to have a sensitivity for those who feel isolated. God, help us to reach out to that friend we haven't heard from in far too long. Help us to say something to that coworker who's gotten really quiet recently. God, remind us that we can find happiness alone, but God, we will find purpose through relationship because your purpose was relationship. Relationship in yourself and relationship with us. God, allow us to go into our world and to be agents of healing and of love and of community. All of this we pray in your son's holy and precious and resurrected name. Amen.